Well, I'm ready to jump into week two of Manger Changer. And to refresh our concept just a little bit, there are a few iconic elements needed when we read the Matthew 2, Luke 2 manger scene, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, that have to be there. We do know that Mary and Joseph have to be there. We know Jesus was there and he was born in a manger. We also know that shepherds came from a mountain nearby. And it also says that three wise men came from afar and uh, uh, came to worship him. And so what we've been playing with here is if you look at this manger scene from my perspective, that would be like God looking at the manger scene of your own heart. There's elements in your life and a lot of different elements and they need to be there. They're in the mix. But where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And so I've got a heart that I've been putting down each week underneath whatever is at the center of it all. And so today's message, last week, was what happens when we exchange wise men for the, the, uh, Jesus in the center of it all. Today's is going to be more clunky for me. Let's try not to break Joseph's other hand. If you look close enough, his hand has broken off. We super glued it last week. Did it work? Come on. No. Wise men was about to eat it. We're done with the wise men anyway. That was last week. <laughs> what happens when Mary and Joseph get moved to the center of the scene? Not, not that Jesus isn't a part of it still, but Jesus joins the peripheral, and what's in the center becomes family. In fact, maybe to illustrate it better, let's not break your hand off again. Let's use something we can all identify with. Oh, come on, look. It's a, little, it's a little wedding topper here. What happens when we put our marriage? What happens when we put our kids? Or what happens when we put any other relationship as the center of our nativity scene? Remember, this is a simple but profound truth that I want you to get through these three weeks. Only Jesus at the center of the manger scene creates Christmas. You could try to throw anything else in the center, and it won't create incarnate. It won't create a, 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 a majestic. It won't create miraculous. It won't create divine. It won't create supernatural. You'll be operating in the natural. But Jesus in the center of it all changes everything. Luke 1, 28 and 29 says about Mary and Joseph, the angel Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you when he approached Mary. And it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. I think there's a few different reasons why Mary was troubled. I think the obvious one that we most oftentimes read at the beginning is Mary is troubled because she's seeing an angel. Like an angel, a divine impartation is in the room, kind of like, who, me? Are my eyes deceiving me? Come on. You would do that too, and you'd be troubled too. Is it a ghost? Come on. We talked about that not too long ago when the disciples saw Jesus walking on water. Are my eyes deceiving me? Is it a ghost? I think she was troubled because of the divine intervention. But I also think it's not a stretch to think she was troubled by the request that the angel was bringing. The request was going to jack up the typical American lifestyle. She wasn't American. I'm just 
contextualizing it to us. The request was going to screw up the whole idea of find a wife, build a house, get a job, have fun. It was going to screw everything she had thought of, planned of, wanted that her friends had, wanted that maybe her parents had. All the traditional lifestyle, God was showing up and saying, would you put me ahead of all those things? Would you sacrifice all those things? And saying yes to God would have family ramifications. Let me illustrate. Saying yes to God means we about to have spousal arguments. If I say yes to you, Angel Gabriel, are you going to explain it to Joseph? You going to explain how I just got impregnated and we haven't even been together yet? I'm a virgin. Are you going to explain it to him? Because I don't know if I've got the right words to. And even if you do, I have a feeling we're going to fight tonight. Come on. Any of y'all like, I know what they're talking about. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. Don't nudge anybody right now. But it's good to know Mary and Joseph had a few disputes too. Um, holy confrontations. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> Girl, I'm going to leave you silently. <laughs> I'm going to leave you in the middle of the night. No, no, no. It meant she was going to have issues with her spouse by saying yes to God. It also meant her other kids would struggle one day too. Do you know, here's a biblical fact. And I don't have enough time to unpack it, but I wish I had time to show it to you. The rest of her children would not accept Jesus Christ as divine son of God and Lord until after Jesus was crucified. They were not part of his disciple crews. They were not believers. There's a scripture in our New Testament that says his brothers rejected him. And would you, wouldn't you? If every time you show up, people compare you to Jesus, and they go, we've seen Jesus' parents, and we've seen Jesus' brothers. He cannot be the Son of God. <laughs> if they do that all the time, or if you show up at one of his gatherings, and, 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 and the people come to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, your mothers and brothers are outside. And he goes, who's my mothers and brothers? Anyone here's my mothers and brothers. I bet James is outside and go, you? Uh, you fill in the blank with names you called your older brother. <laughs> I got a bone to pick with you a little bit later on. I had an older brother. Praise God, God made me faster than him. He was stronger than me, but I was faster than him. Bro, I could lay one on him, and then, poo, you'll never catch me again. One time I ran around the block, my brother gave up halfway through. He's on the live stream right now. You and I both know it's true. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> The Bible says that Mary still chose to say yes to what God had asked her to do. It would have family ramifications. It would jack up the traditional vision. Yet she said yes to God. And so choosing God would actually be best for everyone in the end because the Bible says in the book of Acts that James becomes the preeminent leader of the newborn church. So Je Jesus' actual brother did become the lead foremost leader in the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts. And that might not have ever happened if she hadn't said yes to Jesus. It wouldn't have happened unless she said yes to Jesus. Here's a hard truth that I'm trying to communicate today, and I hope you'll help me get there. Sometimes 
relationships as great as they are, they try to compete with swapping Jesus from the manger scene. And today we have to be very careful of making an idol out of our family members or any other relationship. The Bible says in Luke 14, 25, Jesus is talking to a large crowd. Large crowds gathered, uh, uh, were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What? As you read it today, and as Jesus probably said it in that day, the response for most of us, including myself, what? This is, why such a hard teaching? What is Jesus talking about? And by the way, aren't you love like you are love, and you embody love, and you've already told me to love my neighbor, so why are you now telling me to hate my mother, father, sister, brother, or anyone else? Well, let's look at this word hate in its original terminology. In the Greek language, the word Jesus used is messiah, messiah, and it means one of four things. It means to hate, it means detest, or it could mean love less, or it could mean esteem less. Jesus is saying, if you don't learn to love less, your mother, brother, sister, father, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't learn to esteem less your mother, father, sister, brother, you cannot be my disciple. Let's look at a few other translations to help us understand what he's saying, and then we'll unpack it. The New Living Translation says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. The Amplified Version, which goes to extremes to make sure you understand every single word, uh, it says, when he says, you must hate, it says, in the sense of indifference to or relative disregard for them in comparison with his attitude towards God. The CEV, Contemporary English Version, says, you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother. See, Jesus assumed what I'm asking you to do will inevitably come into uh, a conflict with the people you love dearest. And I'm making it painfully clear. I'm exaggerating my point so that every disciple and follower of mine will know that when that tension happens, you will know what I've asked you to do. I'm trying to make it an extreme so that you know, if it comes down to them or Jesus, so sorry them. If it comes down to desire or Jesus, goodbye your desire. He is saying, anything that comes in conflict with my word needs to be bowed down so that this does not take the center of your heart, but so that my teachings and what I'm doing for you takes the center of your heart. Because if you don't get first things first, and if you put second things first, third place, fourth place, fifth place won't work either. You have to get first things first. Allegiance to God, walking with God, obedience with God, and everything else will flow. Jesus once said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I, I think he probably said, I promise you all these other things will fall into line. I promise you all these other things shall be added unto you. 
And since we're not very good at letting things go, it reminds me a little bit of a Boudreaux joke that I'd share with you right now. Boudreaux's wife, Marie, got in trouble one time. She, she was in the grocery store, and she, she stole a can of peaches. And uh, they caught her, caught her red-handed. They brought her into the courtroom, and uh, Boudreaux sat behind her and said, no matter what, I'm behind you. And, and, and Marie stood there as the judge said, Marie, are you guilty of stealing the can of peaches? She said, Your Honor, yes, I am. I'm so sorry for what I did. And he says, Well, Marie... You must serve a month's time for every peach that was in the can. She said, well, Your Honor, there were only three peaches in there. And the judge said, well, then you must serve three months' sentence as your punishment. To which Boudreaux stood up and said, Your Honor, she also st stole a can of peas as well. <laughs> come on. That's a man who knew how to put righteousness ahead of, no, come. <laughs> That's not good wisdom. For the relationship. But many of us have made idols of our family. And that's an ouch one. That's a, I can't believe you would say that one. But it might sound like this. I used up all my time taking care of them that I have no time to spend with him. I've just been busy with other things all day long. And so I haven't had time to spend with him at all. I've been able, I haven't been able to serve or give like I want because my spouse would get mad at me. So I've refrained. I've compromised my Christian values the moment I got into an issue. The moment my teenage daughter got pregnant, everything else changed. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm so proud of one of our uh, members of our church who just shared recently, you know, I, I didn't wish this upon my child, but I found out she was uh, pregnant. And he said, we will do the right thing. And he's like, it, it might change everything. It might change the outlook, but God is in control, and God is a forgiver, and we will walk in this thing together. And I said, good for you. Thank you for being someone who models faith ahead of family. I, uh, what about this one? I'm more about my child's academic or athletic development than I am about any of our spiritual development. Now, I am the very first person to admit Sometimes the church has done a poor job crucifying families who have athletic kids. I will never be one of those pastors. Because my mentality is I had athletic giftings, I had music giftings. I think it would be hypocritical if we would throw our kids who have musical giftings on the stage and say, look at them worship Jesus, isn't that beautiful? God accepts that. Only to throw our kids who have athletic giftings onto some sort of condemnation situation and go, you need to get your butt back in church. So, I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but I am asking you this. Does God still have the right to speak up and go, let's dial it back a little bit? Does God still have the right to say, to speak up if God wants to speak up? Or will we say, no, 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 no. I got to get him on a scholarship. My kid is smart, brilliant. I got to spend every last minute turning the pages. You get what I'm saying? This is when we start idolizing the kid instead of idolizing Jesus in the center of it all. Proverbs 9.10 says, fear of your spouse is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, sorry, hold on. Fear of your children. Fear of what your children will say if you say no. By the way, parents, they're going to say no for a while. They're going to complain. That's your job for a season, right? Come on. It's not the fear of the kid. It's not the fear of the spouse. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the, say it with me, Lord. 
That's the beginning of wisdom. And when we fear our family more than God, we've rearranged our manger. As tough as the teaching, here's why I, I see that God's trying to help us. Write this down. Any over-reliance on a person is limited. God is trying to help you out, and God is trying to help your family out. Write it down. Any over-reliance on a person is limited. He's trying to help you understand. You go ahead and try to idolize Mary and Joseph and see if they can do what the Messiah can do. You go ahead and try to make your spouse God and see if they don't forfeit the position as soon as possible. You better stop coming to me with all your issues and needs and prayer requests and how I don't measure up and how I need to fulfill you in order for you to be whole. Go to Jesus because I am not strong enough to be your God. Your children are not strong enough to be your God. Your best friend is not strong enough to be your God. Any over-reliance on a human being is limited at best. They can help, but they aren't the healer. They can support, but they aren't the source. Come on. They can provide some joy. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I love my family. I'm so full of joy. It's joy, 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 joy until eventual letdown. Any of y'all else had a mama say this? Come on, my mama coined this phrase and used it a lot. I love you, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> it was a little bit mischievous a little bit, right? I thought I was the source of joy. <laughs> I, thought I, was, I thought I was it. God, I don't like you right now. Would you please leave the room? They can provide some strength. Come on, I love leaning on my spouse when I'm going through a difficult time. Or I love pulling in my kids when it's a difficult time. They can provide some strength, but then eventual letdown when they don't show up. Or they fail me emotionally or some other capacity. They can provide some peace, but eventual letdown. They can provide some faithfulness, but eventual letdown in some form or fashion. You know who's the one who can do all those things and never fails to do all of them? It is only when we keep Jesus Christ in the center of it all that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I have perfect love towards you. I am there whether you go to the mountaintops or the valley low. I am before you and I am behind you. I am with you all the time. And we as human beings are limited. Only Jesus in the center of the nativity creates Christmas. And this is why, by the way, I'm going to throw out an early plug for something I'm so excited about to help families. In February, the first weekend of February, we're going to have our fourth annual marriage conference. And I'm so excited that we've invited the authors, uh, the Freemans, to be with us in person. So on February 3rd, you're going to want to reserve your calendar. They are the authors of the, um, one of the swiftest selling books when it released called The Argument Hangover. And come on, they're going to they're gonna help some marriages out. They're going to help some families out because we want to support families and we want to support marriages because I believe that God is in it and I believe it's part of our strength. So uh, you're going to want to mark your calendars and tell as many people as you can that they, they need to come to this thing that we want to help support and build families. So how, to become a, how do I become the changer of a misplaced manger? And I've reserved some time at the end so that we can worship God and put him first. So I'm going to go swiftly. Number one, Evaluate if any relationships or actions compete with God's calling. How do I become 
a changer of a misplaced manger, you have to stop and evaluate, are any other relationships or any other things competing with my calling on my life? And many of us are confused what our calling is. Oftentimes, we make our calling way too occupational. Like, well, you're called pastor to be a pastor, but I still don't know what I'm called to be. I think we focus way too much on trying to make our calling occupational because God just wants it to be spiritual first. In our Bible, there's some universal ones, and I highly recommend you read The Purpose Driven Life that uh, uh, spells it out more. But here's five that I think you should take a screenshot on, and I'm not going to sit here very long. But number one is worship. Every single one of us is called to center our lives around God. Matthew 22 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second thing is fellowship, learning to love God's family. It gets bigger. You are now my brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on, Hebrews 10 says, let us not give up the habit of meeting together. Instead, let us encourage one another. And so if my family member says no, I say, hey, I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to keep these truths central. Am I talking about perfect attendance? No, I'm not. I'm talking about the posture of your heart. Number three, discipleship. Cultivating spiritual maturity. I need to grow on a regular basis with God. That's what I'm called to do. Hebrews said, let us go on and become mature in our understanding. The fourth one is ministry. Contributing something back. God, you've been so good to me. I want to give back to you and use my life to honor you. First uh, Peter says, God has given each of you some special abilities. Be sure to use them to help each other. And fifthly, evangelism, telling someone else about the good medicine that saved your life. The name, Jesus Christ. The name, hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Second Corinthians said, so we have been sent to speak for Christ. And so if you're not sure of your calling, start there and let God specialize. Let God specify from there. He can do that. That's, that's, in fact, how did I find my calling? I just started doing these five things, and eventually uh, God started revealing what he wanted me to do with my life. Amen? And so it doesn't ha have to mean an occupational change, but relationally, I, sa I said to my wife before I even got married, I need space to let God be number one, and you be number two. And so I've messed with her a lot. Sometimes we're in the produce section, of the grocery, and I'll just go, hey, babe, how's it feel to be number two in my life? Come on. And, you know, it's just like, that doesn't sound right. And I know. I should stop. I should stop saying that. I should stop saying that. It's really cruel. And she's like, she does the whole eye roll thing. I think females have the spiritual gift of eye rolls. Men can't do it as good as women. And she gives me a very big eye roll. But God's always going to be number one in my life. I look there in the mirror quite often. I, she's in the mirror getting ready next to me. I'm like, you are the most incredible number two in my life. <laughs> but God's got to be number one. And I got to follow the calling he's put on my life. And she gives me liberty to do that. And by the way, I got to give her liberty to do that. And I can't let my kids compete with that. And here's the second one. Remember, any over-reliance on a person is limited, including an over-reliance on yourself. So here's the second one, prayer and fasting. When we pray and when we fast, it atrophies the I can do it myself mentality. I can get us where we want. I can get my family where we want. 
I can become the model of perfect love. I can become the model of a perfect marriage. I can raise up perfect children. I can, I can, I can. No, you cannot. You need to come to the awareness that you're just not strong enough, that God is for it more than you're for it. God is able more than you're able. And so every once in a while, prayer and fasting helps me remind myself. It puts my ego in check. And when you pray and fast, oftentimes we're doing exactly that. If we could do it ourselves, look at the world around us and tell us, tell me how it's going. We live in the most I'll-do-it-myself society that any generation in all of time has probably created. This whole, I don't need God, I don't need you, I don't need your opinion, I don't need universal rule, I don't need universal law, I don't need anybody else because me, myself, and I get to decide if everything else goes or doesn't go. How's it going? Look at the world around us. Look at the systems around us. If you could do it yourself, we would be in a better shape than we currently are. It's only by keeping Jesus in the middle of it all that great people rise, great families rise, great states and nations rise. And we got to make sure that he's on the throne and no one else is. It reminds me one time of Ezra and chapter 8, Ezra's returning God's people out of exile, and they're trying to come out of Babylon, where they were humiliated because they lost the land of Israel, out of their own disobedience, by the way. God never promised, if you disobey, I'll let you have the promised land. In fact, he said, that land is mine. As long as you obey, you're going to live off the fruits. You're going to have the oil of life. If you disobey, that land's mine. And so they were exiled to Babylon. And finally, they repented of their sins. And Ezra's bringing them home. And this is what Ezra says. I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. You think he cares about the family? I know you care about the family. But what he is saying is the best way to care for our family is to pray and fast first because we ain't strong enough to protect them. We're not good enough to have divine wisdom. We're not smart enough. We're going to pray and fast and ask God to be Lord over it all, and then he'll protect what we care about too. He actually admitted, for I was ashamed to ask the foreign kings for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies along the way. After all, I had told them our king will do that. After all, I told them our God's hand of protection is on us. The God we worship will protect us. But by the way, can you send footmen to protect us too? We don't want to be the Christians who go, my God is over all things. But just in case. No, no, no. My just in case is I'm going to pray and fast and make sure he is in that place. And it says, verse 23, so we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us. And he heard our prayer. That's my hope that it hit your soul just now. What you care about is not bad to care about. God just cares about it more than you do. And your efforts might get in the way more often than you think. The best way to care about what you care about is to let what you care about slip from number one to number two and let God be Lord over it all. I hope I communicated that well. Are we getting that this morning, Live Church? 
So every new year in January, we set apart a time of prayer and fasting. The last few years, we did 21 days of prayer and fasting. But I love what we did the last time uh, we prayed and fasted over this room is we did seven days and we had worship nights every single day. I think this will be easier for more people to participate and more people to say, I'm going all in for seven days. If you want to go 21 days, start with us and go an extra 14. That would be awesome. But for seven days, January 7th through 14th, we're going to have worship nights Monday through Friday night right here. And we're going to start our year praying and fasting and putting God first. If that sounds good, give God some praise today. Prayer and fasting. So I conclude by saying, our families matter, but they can never hold weight in the center of our nativity scene. Only Jesus in the center creates Christmas. Can I pray for you? God, I lift us up. This is not what Americana teaches us. Sometimes this isn't what our peers or school systems teach us. We're taught to try to Go make a lot of money. Go find somebody who makes you happy, and that will make you happy. No, Lord. Finding you makes us happy. You're the author of our life. You created us, and help us to put you number one in it today. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I'm not going to call you forward or embarrass you, but I want to give everybody a chance in this place. If you know you're not right with God, if you know your family's number one or anything else is number one, and you want to now say today, I want to put God number one in my life again. I want to repent of my sins, ask him to forgive me, and make him number one in my life again. Without looking around and without hesitating, would you just quickly throw your hand up into the air right now? Yes, yes, yes. Hands going up everywhere. Thank you. If you hesitated, come on. Raise your hand right now. It's not too late. Just say, that was me. I really needed to get in on it. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm so proud of you guys. As a church, I'm going to ask us to repeat this prayer after me. And everyone who raised their hand, I need you to believe every word you say. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I know I'm a sinner. I've made many mistakes. And I'm asking you to forgive me now. I'm so sorry for what I've done. But I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And when he died on that cross, he died to set me free. I receive forgiveness right now. And I am a brand new person. In Jesus' name I pray. And the church said, amen. Stand up on your